Hi, Victoria. How are you doing today? I'm all right. How are you? Doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. Um, for folks that don't know you, do you mind introducing yourself uh, to the audience of the Chillinois podcast? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for reaching out and, and wanting to talk more. Um, I'm Victoria Lippman. I am a woman of many interests, but I guess most primarily I'm a lawyer, a tax lawyer, recent graduate of Georgetown Law with a tax LLM, where I focused on tax exempt orgs um, and cannabis and psychedelics. But I'm a, also a longtime medical cannabis patient. So I've been a medical cannabis patient since 2013, um, first in California, then in New York, uh, now in Rhode Island. And that my you know use of cannabis and love and belief in the plant really motivated my academic journey. Um, after college where I studied undergrad, I went on to divinity school. So I have a master's of divinity in religion and law. And that also really pushed me forward through to law school and then this tax degree. So been in school a lot, written about a lot of things, have um, some experience working for a cannabis and psychedelic law firm based in Denver, uh, started student chapter of the Cannabis Bar Association, so connected to those awesome people, um, have connected a community of State of Cannabis, where we do nonprofit cannabis news. Uh, so I'm, I'm connected in this space as much as I possibly can be and always eager to learn more and have great conversations. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I constantly see you starting uh, great conversations on Twitter. Folks that want to connect with you on Twitter, uh, we'll throw the handle in the podcast description. So if you look in the show notes, uh, just click the link and that'll take you to our show notes and you can find uh, Victoria on Twitter. And uh, if you have other ways, we can throw those links in the podcast description as well. So I think this will get us knee deep into the conversation. Um <laughs> You talked about the fact that you studied tax exempt organizations and uh, you also had some studies involved or like you, you looked into things regarding cannabis and psychedelics. Some people might not see the where those where they tie together. Can you take that on? Yeah, sure. Well, they're, you know, the people that say that you know, they may be looking at the existing industry and the IRS's position at this point um, in most instances, you can't have a 501c3 tax-exempt nonprofit for an illegal purpose or it's promoting an illegal purpose. Um, so right now, I think it's an area, it's like if cannabis and psychedelics are you know, nascent new areas, the nonprofit sector within cannabis and psychedelics is still very much to come um, and will involve obviously some federal law change and advocates such as myself and colleagues that really wanna push forward the ability for tax-exempt organizations to thrive in cannabis and psychedelics. That being said, there are some great examples. So just like as a basic matter, a tax exempt nonprofit, you could be a public charity, you could be a private foundation, but you know, usually you think about healthcare organizations, religious organizations, and educational organizations. Um, and they have to be providing some kind of charitable benefit to a large group of people. Um, so a big example of this on the psychedelic side, and they also do cannabis work is MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. That's a big 501c3. Another one could be like Dance Safe, um, is a big 501c3. Uh, I think Usona, like there, there are other 501c3s, um, a lot of churches, psychedelic churches. So that's a big area of research, um, which I mean, we could go down that rabbit hole, but um, there are a lot of different approaches these psychedelic churches have taken. And some of them have been approved by the IRS and some of them are suing the IRS. Um, but all of that said, when I think about the possibilities of psychedelics and nonprofits and cannabis and nonprofits, you know, 
the exciting thing is that a nonprofit can make income that's tax exempt if it's furthering their charitable purpose. So right now we can't really see it because the IRS is kind of standing in the way. But, you know, when you think about like an, an organization that says we want to provide cannabis for cancer patients, like that's a charitable purpose, right? Like we want to provide, you know, something for a religious sacrament. Like that should be a charitable tax exempt purpose that is not subject to 280 cap E, which is this, you know, dreaded tax code that really affects cannabis and psychedelic businesses. So I think it's going to take a lot of um, education and I think people have to see the benefit, but there could be a real concrete tax benefit to going this nonprofit tax exempt route. Um, so I'm excited to continue the conversation about it and to be doing some of that education. Yeah. Well, so you kind of ended off with the <laughs> the path that I was trying to go down, which is I feel like churches or well, okay, let's back up. You've actually you've <laughs> actually made this clarification for when we say churches, what do we mean? Uh sorry to put you on the spot because no, I can't no, no, remember no. exactly what you said. Uh you it's said a, something. It's a complex question. It's really a complex question. So I think a church at this point is like a legal term of art. Obviously it's a Western, it's a Christian centric yep. view, but it sort of means like a religious community in the eyes of the law. And generally with constitutional law, we don't really want the government defining what a church is, but the IRS has some factors that they use. A lot of them are based on Western Christian ideas of religion, you know, having one faith, having a membership, having a Sunday school, having a training program for clergy. Um, so there is like legal significance for that, I guess, both in the First Amendment religious freedom world um, and in the tax exempt world, although you can be a, a non-church religious organization. Um, I could go further down there, but I hope that answered that question. You know, it did. So what I, the point I was trying to make is that I feel like some of the, the most dramatic progress we've made in drug policy involves... <sighs> I, t I like, I'm going to say churches, but what I mean to say, let's just say it directly, peyoteism, for example, like that is allowed, right? Am I correct in thinking that? Well, what is the status of like pay the use of peyote and like for spiritual purposes? So there's a, an exemption from the CSA, um, the Controlled Substances Act, which is the federal law that makes cannabis um, or and all these drugs that schedules them that makes well, not all drugs, not tobacco or not alcohol, but the drugs that the government has decided that we should schedule. Um, uh, so peyote, there, there is an exemption. It's interesting, like in the Supreme Court has relied on this in the UDV case, which is an ayahuasca church case from the early 2000s that, you know, it's really actually, I think you're right, been helpful to arguments about religious freedom to say that there's always been this religious exemption. Um, it, it, there was an evolution where there what were laws that were uh, criminalizing Native American religious practices in, in the U.S. And then there was this advocacy um, by some actually religious scholars such as Houston Smith to legalize through the Native American or I think it's Indian Religious Freedom Act. Um, American Indian Religious Freedom Act. I'm not used to calling them Indians because they're not India. <laughs> but um, yeah, so there is that protection uh, for those practices within a native tradition. Gotcha. Yeah. And I just, I, so one of the things you said earlier was that, you know, some of these churches need to be able to, to prove that their sacrament or provide something to that effect. And one of the points you've made in the past is that alcohol churches don't need to prove that, sacramental wine is central to their practice in order to access safe sacrament. And so again, I, I start this conversation off with this because again, I feel like the churches in a weird way have made more substantial progress and reform for the, the use of substances 
than we've made as a society in some ways. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. I mean, I think it depends. There, there are, it's, it's funny. It's like, as a lawyer, you're in this weird space where like on the ground, I mean, there are religious communities all over this country who believe that their practices are sincere, are religious and are constitutionally protected and that are mostly able to fly under the radar. Um, and, and do those practices. And in that way, they're providing, uh, a, in most instances, a safe container, um, access to substances with some amount of oversight. I mean, not enough. And I think those are the arguments that I have for decriminalization is that we need to make it safer and there needs to be even more oversight. Um, but to those communities, what they're doing is religious constitutionally protected activity. Now, from the perspective of the U.S. government, um, unless you have one of these like very few DEA exemptions that the DEA has never voluntarily given, um, you're not legally protected. You're potentially legally defensible, uh, but you're not protected. And one of the, the, the way that the Supreme Court and the DEA views sacramental use of psychedelics, you know, when they're thinking about, is this a substantial burden on religious practice? They're, they're asking, like, is this one of the key questions is, is this practice central to your faith? And I think when I tweet like that, it's like so frustrating to me that that has to be it almost like it, it feels like it has had the impact of impacting how psychedelic churches have evolved. Um, so I'm married to a rabbi. I'm very active in a Jewish community. So for me, I have an example in my head of a, Jew, a religious community in this country, one that is not forced to prove its sincerity to the DEA. And so we, you know, we have services, we have wine, we have bread, we have other meals, we have programming, but not every single thing that we have has to revolve around a sacrament because we're not trying to prove to the DEA that that sacrament is central to our faith. And so I actually think in some ways the DEA in this Western model or this, oh, it has to be since it's actually almost taking some of the potential for community away from these religions because they feel like they have to have, you know, sacrament in every single ceremony. And uh, I mean, I think, and I, I've tweeted about this too, that we're going to see like what a church is versus what a commercial ceremony is there'll be some distinction legally um, in the sense of like, well, if you're going to really pay membership dues and belong to a religious community and you're engaged in the community and there's Sunday school and that, and like whether that's a Jewish community or a new psychedelic religious community, um, it's like an, a community that is a sustained community versus I want to access name your drug. I'm going to go to a commercial ceremony that is a religious non-medical context um, that may probably be taxed, whereas religion is not taxed. I mean, there's a lot of interesting tax implications of these questions, um, but they really impact access. Yeah. So it's just, um, <laughs> it's a really interesting topic for me because the, the, there's a lot of reasons that I ask these questions, but I don't mean to send us on a tangent at all, but it no, seems no. like some of the ways that we can achieve um, change is through um, in a weird way when like religious organizations try to fight for the right for these types of things. So I'll give you an example, a, a couple of different examples. So there's, there's this, the idea that, you know, maybe churches would try to fight for the, for the right to use their preferred sacrament. And that's so interesting that they would have to prove the sincerity. Like what, the, what does that even mean? It's like, I'm pretty sincere in the fact that I love this, <laughs> you know what I mean? But anyways, I sincerely um, love weed. Like, <laughs> right. Right. So, uh, really quick though, uh, the, the weird angle I have on this subject is that I feel like it's an opportunity to another opportunity rather to, to make change or to cause change. 
So an example that I can give you that might feel weird, uh, since, you know, you mentioned that you're, you know, the spouse of a rabbi and whatever, but the, the satanic temple or wait, is it the church of Satan? I can't, I always get the, mixed no, no, up. no. I know what you're talking about. I think the one that's the Satan. one that's like not serious. That's tongue in cheek. You know what I mean? In this part of the podcast, I was attempting to refer to the satanic temple, not the church of Satan. Um, it's easy to mix up the two, but they are separate entities. So the satanic temple calls itself a religious organization that opposes tyrannical authority. They see Satan as a symbol of free inquiry and personal autonomy. The satanic temple watches for breaches of the separation between church and state. They often argue that if Christianity can cross the line between church and state, then Satanism can too. They say they rely on science as the arbiter of truth claims, which made me think that Satanism was a sort of sarcastic perspective that was solely meant to equalize the power that Christianity has within our culture. And for the most part, I still think that's true. Members of the Satanic Temple admit they do not actually believe in Satan as a figure or in anything supernatural. That would be the Church of Satanism. I encourage you to read more about the Satanic Temple. I think you'll learn a lot. There are certainly some odd figures that are related to the Satanic Temple and especially the Church of Satan. But with regard to the Satanic Temple, I think that they have a admirable stance on most topics. And most people don't realize that. They, they hear the Satanic Temple and they think of worshiping Satan eating babies, et cetera, et cetera. Back to the episode. I mean, um, or they are serious, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Well, okay. So what I mean to say by not serious <laughs> is that they don't, the, there's, there's one that actually worships Satan. And then there's another church that I, I, I'm mixing it up. I should really get. There's one, you're talking about the one that's advocating for abortion rights. Correct. They do things like that. Um, uh, they've done different things on freedom of speech, which like in the past, for example, some schools have been like, oh, you're, you're only allowed. Um, I can't remember exactly what it would be, but schools have been selective with what type of pamphlets they'll allowed to be. They will allow to be handed out. So they might only allow Christian pamphlets. They may not allow like, um, you know, is people to pass out things on the Islamic faith or whatever. Um, and so in a lot of areas I've seen that I can I need to, I'll straighten it up here in a second. Um, um You're good. But they've challenged, they'll provide their own paperwork. You know what I mean? And, and they kind of are a balancing act to, um, for folks that I frankly aren't religious. Um, I, that's how I view them. And so, um, in a weird way, I feel like if churches can attain this status for sacrament, you know, that maybe they would be able to approach it from that angle too. You know what I'm saying? Sorry. I, I have really, no, 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 no. I mean, it's okay. I think I, I do understand what you're saying. And I, you know, it's like who gets to decide what is religious use and what is a religion and what is spiritual use. And like, do, do when I think about like the long-term goals, which really have motivated all of my academic work and my professional work is creating access for people um, and sustained access, you know, not just altered states, but altered traits, like really helping people heal and through cannabis, through psychedelics. Um, and what I come back to, I mean, the medical model for, for both, for, I mean, 
the medical model generally will help people access certain types of medicine, um, but it's only going to be accessible to you know, people that can afford it, which our healthcare system is not <laughs> very accessible. So when I do think about religious use, I don't think about it, you know, I think it's like it, you get like the benefit of both, like you get the benefit both of like communities or, you know, movements that could access these substances in ways that are less regulated, less taxed, more accessible, but you also get the benefit of the religion, like as someone who's a, I would say religious person, what that means to me. I mean, I'm a progressively minded, I'm open-minded, I'm accepting, but I'm religious. I think that there's value in having community. I think a sense of belonging, I think ritual, I think all these things are good for our well-being and our mental health. And so when people are like, oh, well, we're just going to create a church so we can access psychedelics. I'm like, look, if people want to create community and create doctrine, like that would be a good thing. Like to me, I'm like, okay, great. You know, like let's get, and when you think about um, there's, I mean, even on the psychedelic research medical side, there are researchers that say that the medical efficacy is correlated with the spiritual or mystical effect. And we know that long-term integration uh, supports, you know, healing. So having a container, a religious community where you can do the psychedelic or you can access the psychedelic otherwise, and then you have a community where you're, you know, talking about how do we live a better life? Because that's what my religious community is. You know, it's like, what can we learn from our history? How can we learn to live more connected to the present and the future? Um, and that that would be a very good way for people to access these drugs. <laughs> and it's very yeah. counter, like, it's funny because we don't think about them as alcohol churches. Um, Maybe we should be. I had a friend who's an advocate in the religious space who said to me to that tweet, he said, um, I was, he said, I thought you were talking about bars. <laughs> I was like, alcohol churches are bars. Like, you know, if that's the model we want to go with, then like, I think we could also have cannabis churches that are more like a bar community club model. Um, Cause I think we need that. I mean, that's a huge hole is consumption spaces and communities. Yeah. Well, and like you say, so it's a, just a space for community, a space for a ritual. And what I mean by that, some pe- we've talked about this on the show in the past. It's actually uh, kind of loosely quoting from Michael Pollan. I'm not sure if you're familiar with mm-hmm. his work, but he's talked about the importance <laughs> of a ritual. And some people, including myself, initially shy away from that because they hear ritual and they think like, uh, you know, re- different religious, like they, they, you come away with different interpretations of what a ritual actually is. But when you break it down to a ritual being like, Okay, so maybe you don't start drinking until a certain time. You know, pe- people might point out like, hey, you know, it's a little, I'm not okay with shaming usually of drugs, but yeah. in, in, in certain cases, people will say like, hey, you know, it's a little early. And the reason they say that is because generally the ritual is it's five o'clock somewhere, right? You drink right. at the end of the day. Another part of the ritual, and this is a modern adaptation, is you don't drink and drive. You know, that's, that's part of the ritual and people will shame you for that. And I argue that's maybe a good form of shame, like, you know, cause it's out of safety. It's like out of concern rather. Um, so, so yeah, I right there with you. Yeah. Definitely need a sense of community and, and ritual and everything else. And I think one of the questions you brought up, which you've posted on Twitter before you said, you know, key question that I don't have an answer to who in the government or otherwise should be in the position to decide whether an entheogenic religious community is sincere? I think that's a brilliant question. (laughs) I mean, it's like, to me, it's like the question. Um, And when I think about, so, I mean, I've studied regulatory side stuff too. And, you know, I know a lot of listeners are potentially like people who are more familiar with the cannabis market and the regulated market. But like, even if like, when you, it's like, when I ask someone, you know, who should regulate cannabis? Well, no one should like, we should just be able to grow it. Well, yeah. Okay. Like I'm with you, but someone is going to do it. Right. Like the way that our system of government works, like, 
I mean, we've given up a little bit of our, or a lot, depending on who you ask, of our freedom um, to live in this society where there are some benefits and there are some downsides. And we have ceded some power and someone in the government uh, is making decisions. And right now from the religious side, like I said, there are religious communities and I think many of them are sincere and I would agree are Constitu- should be constitutionally protected, but the government would say, you know, that's not legally protected practice. And the government could come seize their drugs. The government could arrest them. Um, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're at risk and they can't take advantage of some of the things I was saying earlier about like a nonprofit model where you can, you know, like take in money and you can fund activities and you like, they can't really lean into that because they're still uh, in the shadows essentially. And I mean, it's funny, the answers to that tweet on Twitter were like, were like, oh, like, no one should. Like, who's who Who should be? I'm like, I get it. But right now, I mean, you have the DEA saying that they're in a position to do it. And I certainly don't think it's the DEA. Um, and I mean, the IRS has been doing it for a long time. Our churches are not required to file, um, but a lot of them do file anyways, because a lot of people want to see your determination letter when you're trying to buy something or rent property or open a bank account. So it's kind of an unfair thing where it's like the government's to say, well, like churches don't have to apply, but in reality, they kind of do have to apply. Um, so, I mean, one project I am interested in is revamping the IRS churches uh, guidelines to try and make them more accepting. Um, I mean, I think that there could be a world where we just decriminalize religious use and then the burden should be on the government to prove that the religious use is not sincere. I think that's the most basic thing that we need to shift where like the burden shouldn't be on a religious community and the way the DEA process works. I mean, it's like, amnesty with no follow-up it's like they have to you have to disclose all of your practices you have to tell them like what kind of psychedelics you're using where you're getting them or controlled substances i guess it could be cannabis or any other controlled substance you know you have to disclose what you're doing and that stuff has been used against communities they target communities it's like so not constitutional and like most religious lawyers in the space uh lawyers advising religious communities are are not advising their clients to apply for this dea status i mean it's literally just like not it's not attainable and it's just disclosing your practice and putting a target on your back. Um, so I think the point of asking that question is I think we need a solution. Like is that, if as a movement, we're like, well, the DEA shouldn't be the one making this decision. Well, it's like, well, then who should be? Um, I don't have the answer yet. I don't know. <laughs> I still don't have the answer. Yeah. Well, I really think that, like you say, that is the question because it, I'm sorry, but you just can't, um, I don't mean, I don't know why I'm saying I'm sorry, but no, uh, no. you just can't, um, I feel like they can't move forward with this without answering. Like if they answer this question, it has to involve the decriminalization of drugs, period. I don't think you could. I just think it's such a slippery slope and it'd be a hard thing for them to do uh, to try to like. And I, I think we're in agreement on this to, to prove that sincerity, um, because what does that even mean? Like because people sincerely believe things. Some people sincerely believe that. Hillary Clinton drinks the blood of newborns. You know what I mean? I mean, people sincerely believe some of these things. It's a weird example to use, but I just no, 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 no. I get what you mean. I mean, I think it's also worth and and I I love I love the idea. I guess of separation of church and state, but like this country, it's just an idea. Like we're still, and some people will get mad that I say this in in the worlds I'm in, where they're like, "Don't say it's a Christian country. We're not." But these people who are, you know. You know, uh, revolting, you know, attacking the capital. They're saying this is a Christian country and we need to, but like we are a Christian country, which means our definition of in practice, in actual reality, we have under God on our money. We have like Pledge of Allegiance under, we're talking about a Christian. What is God. today? What is today? 524, 2022. What does that mean? 2022 years since what? 
And our federal holidays are all Christian and, and holidays. I mean, really quick, I don't mean to cut you off, but there's a comedian that has a really funny joke about that. What I'm trying to say for folks that don't get what I'm saying is the date we're using is because of Christianity. Thank you, thank <laughs> Be- you, thank you for saying that. I was just like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to really quickly say the joke, some people will say like, oh, but there's there's other calendars. The Chinese New Year. Okay. Go ahead and try to put, you know, in on your tax form where it says year, go ahead and put monkey and see what happens. <laughs> go ahead and see what happens. The, you're going to get a call from the IRS. You need to put in that it's been however many years since Jesus died because that's what this that's what this world is frankly. I mean we all celebrate New Year's on the same day and that's people of multiple faiths. <laughs> so, sorry. I, I no, feel no, like no. it's important to It's important like Christian hegemony and this and like I don't I went to a progressive Christian divinity school. There are amazing Christians, there are amazing people of all faiths. It's not a dig necessarily at like Christianity, although we could go there. I don't need to go there. I'm yeah. just saying it's like a reality. It's like, okay, so what? So our I'd say country- it's not a dig or an endorsement. We're just yeah, trying to yeah. Be we're just trying to say it how it is. It's just like as a real a matter of fact. Like, and I think that the reason that matters from the perspective of an advocate who wants to further religious freedom is our language of religion. And this is something that's just a phenomenon in religious studies. I mean, there's a book, Orientalism, which kind of talks about the opposite of like how we other like our idea, the category of religion, and the word religion, what that means to us is all based on this Western Christian, you know, Jesus-centric, Bible-centric, church-centric, Sunday-centric. I mean, the IRS literally says Sunday school on their stuff. Like that is, that is a Christian, that's a Christian thing. And I mean, it's, it is what it is. And then it's like, so we need to be even more careful when we're talking about religious freedom to be inclusive. And I mean, it kind of is unfortunate because religious freedom in this country, I mean, it's good and it's bad. I mean, people are using case law. There's religious freedom case law that says, you know, I should have the right to discriminate against uh, queer people, like on my religious freedom. And the Supreme Court says, okay, yeah, you do. And that sucks. And at the same time, like that freedom should mean that we have the freedom to put whatever we want in our bodies, like, and that we have the freedom to do whatever at bodily autonomy. And it's like, how can we use these arguments um, to the advantage of all of us? Because I don't think that the right or conservatives or anyone owns religion. Like, I'm not willing to see that. I'm not willing yeah. to be like, religion is bad and you can only use religion to do bad stuff. Like, no. Yeah. Well, let's just tiptoe into a controversial subject and then we can, we can if we want to, we can, if it's the water. <laughs> we cold, weren't we, in one. We weren't in a well, conversation. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> I live um, in this. I live in it. It's all right. So bodily autonomy, you've recently posted that you could make the argument that religious protections uh, could protect abortion. Um, it's just an interesting uh, argument. Like, uh, first of all, for the record, I'm pro-life, not that anybody, you know, uh, or sorry, pro-choice. Whoa, that could have been bad. Uh, pro-choice. I am pro-choice. Um, funny how you can get those mixed up. I was, I am, it's not funny. If you're really pro-life, you would support like taking care of kids once they're born. Okay. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah, it's not <laughs> funny, but so pro-choice, I wanted to say that for the record so that it doesn't, it doesn't feel like you. you're trying to defend yourself against me. Tell me though, your how you would do that. I saw that you made that statement that you could make an argument that religious freedom protect, protects the right for abortion. I mean, I mean, the, the lawyer answer is, well, it depends what the law says. And then I would look at the case law. Um, and there's definitely Jewish teachings of faith that I'm in about the value of life. And 
Um, when we talk about life, we're talking about like the life of a mother and the right to like make decisions and bodily autonomy and, and yeah. So I think like that, that's the theological arguments. And I know that there are arguments in all faith groups where people can make the arguments. I mean, abortion is not in the Bible. Actually, there's like a, it, it's just like anti-abortion is that there's actually, I think there's some Jewish texts that talk about abortion as like something that we can do, but not in those words. Um, yeah. I have to ask my husband about that. Uh, this is why it's nice to have an in-house rabbi. Um, yeah. But it would, it would depend what the law says and then the arguments you can make about the law. Um, but the most current Supreme Court case on free exercise, which would be like the right to practice your faith, uh, is this case, Fulton v. City of Philadelphia, which I just alluded to, um, where basically this, I'll try and say it, it's boring legalese, but the court was like, well, since there was an exemption, it's this, it's stupid. It's really stupid because the original idea is like, well, if there are neutral laws, then you can't get religious exemptions from them because they're neutral. They're generally applicable. This is actually, there's a peyote case in the nineties and justice Scalia was just like, well, if we just let people say that my faith means I shouldn't have to follow the law, like what's that going to do to our system? But those laws were not neutral, generally applicable. There were peyote exemptions. Uh, it's whatever. So then that kind of discourse, it's like, okay, one of the questions is, is this law apply to everyone? Or is there an exemption? And if there's already an exemption, then I should be able to get a religious exemption. That's like in, in layman's terms. And so it would depend what the law looks like. Like if there was an abortion law that had any kind of exemption in it or any kind of discretionary enforcement, um, then we could make better religious freedom arguments. Uh, I mean, I've been thinking about it from the nonprofit side too, like a religious nonprofit providing healthcare or a healthcare nonprofit. I mean, I, I'm, I, it sucks that that's even something I have to think about. I mean, it's like, it's just like, should be bodily autonomy. Uh, but there definitely are a lot more conversations about, you know, how abortion and drug use relate, you know? Um, and that's, that's why I bring it up. Cause that's why I said we can tiptoe into it. And that's our exit plan is we can switch to drugs. If, Cause some, yeah, yeah, some yeah, people yeah. just I mean, get really. It go, came go up. No, sorry. It just, it came up the other night. And it's like, I think it's like bodily autonomy. Like there are plenty of people like I should be able to do whatever I want to my body. And then it's like, well, that's where the pro-life argument comes in. Well, like, well, it's not your body. It's someone else's life that you've created. I mean, I don't know. The whole, it's ridiculous. It's like, it's like, yeah. oh, we shouldn't let people kill a baby one day before it's born. I'm like, no woman wants to be pregnant and then kill their baby the day before they're born unless they absolutely have to. Right. Like that. It's like, why do people think that women are out here wanting to murder babies? <laughs> Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It, like you say, it kind of all boils down to um, whether or not they're actually living. And somebody like myself would argue that it's a similar situation that uh, like if you had a grandparent on a life support um, at that point, they're not living. So if you pull the plug, are you a murderer? No, no. You just, you decided that they can't live. They can't go on like that. And, and like, just like, if it were really about, you know? if it were really about preventing, and I agree with you on that one. And it's like, if it were really about preventing, um, you know, people from killing other, like, it's like, we could do sex education. We could do wide access to birth control. We could do all these other, like, we could do like just widespread sex education, literally about how to prevent unwanted pregnancies and creating access to birth control. But it's really not about that. It's really about controlling women and, and not giving them the tools to make choices about their lives. And yeah. I mean, yeah. Cause it, it like, it's, and, and we were saying this before too, if it's really about life, like let's support, you know, and it's just like, 
we could tiptoe away. No, just kidding. I can, I sure. can keep going on it. I can keep going on it, but it, it's not my, it's funny. It's like, as a lawyer, one of the things that you have to know is like this, like I'm not an abortion, uh, reproductive justice. I mean, I'm, I love making creative constitutional law arguments. I'm excited to do it for my whole career. Um, as long as our constitution still applies and our government still works, uh, <laughs> I don't know. And I do yeah. think there are going to be religious freedom arguments to make. It's interesting. I think, um, more conservatives are actually trying to make their religious freedom arguments through the free speech, uh, jurisprudence to say like, oh, well, it's not just my right to uh, pray or whatever. It's my right free speech, right? Uh, so I think like other other people are doing the same strategy of like, well, maybe if the privacy right isn't going to exist, our religious freedom rights are really strong and we can use those that case law and that history uh, to make those kind of arguments. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that a good transition uh, is the idea that you talked about. There could be education, um, there could be tools that are provided um, to make this a, a safer conversation to where maybe it doesn't have to go to that. I think that relates to drugs a lot. Um, and the idea that we currently don't have a lot of onus on good education around the use of drugs. Um, and we don't have uh, a quote unquote safe supply, which really quick uh, people that are against the war on drugs will say, there's no such thing as safe supply. And I will go, I, some people are surprised as an advocate that I'll go this far. Sure, all drug use may not be healthy, but that's not really the point. The point is you shouldn't be in jail for it. I don't think going to jail is very healthy, frankly. And so, uh, you know, that's really what it comes down to. And and with regard to safe supply of drugs, sure, if if we have a safe supply of heroin, overdoses may continue. But that's not a result of the heroin. It's a result of somebody not knowing how to correctly use the drug or, um, you know, people have different reactions to different drugs. Some people are sensitive to different drugs. So I don't mean to say that it's ignorance always. It could just be sensitivity. But these are things we can learn about if we standardize and, and I don't want to say legalize because now that's come to mean a commercial. And we're going to talk about that, too. You've you have set you've this tweet that if I could frame it on a wall, it's like, it's something that I've been asking about for a while. So I know we're going to have a good conversation there. Awesome. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I really think that relates to the war on drugs, bodily autonomy and every, and all the benefits that would come to it. If we would simply allow for this to be open to the medical space um, and just the rest of the world, like I don't think it should require a medical justification or a religious justification I think that we live in a free country and we should be able to interact with these compounds freely and, and we should be able to, to know what we're getting. That's the biggest problem with the war on drugs right now. Like you can't clearly say that, uh, and this is actually a point that Dana, Dana Larson, an activist from Canada made one point at one point on our show. You can't even truly say that these drugs are killing people. In fact, you could even easily argue that people could be taken out by these drugs. Like, I, I'm not saying that that's something that's happening widespread, but if, if it's kind of like the Dave Chappelle joke where he find the cops find some black people and they're like, Oh, sprinkle some crack on them. Then they'll just ride it. They'll just chalk it up to gang violence instead of that. It's a murder. Right. And so, uh, I feel like with drugs, if, if drugs are at all involved, you notice like Bob Saget just died and they're like, Oh, by the way, we had no signs of drugs being involved. It's like, it wouldn't matter if there were drugs being involved. That, you know what I mean? In my opinion. And like, it, that, like, what does that even mean? Like, did you check for sugar? Did you check for alcohol? Did you check for caffeine? <laughs> right. Did Thank you. you. Thank yeah. you. 
Yeah, exactly. Oh. We when we think of drugs, we think of the ones that are on the CSA, which you've pointed out in the past that some of the most uh, dangerous drugs that we know of, tobacco and alcohol, are not on the Controlled Substances Act. As uh, I like to say, and I think I heard it from Hamilton Morris, um, only the fun drugs are on the CSA. Because <laughs> it's not like poison or anything, like like literally cyanide. Like, I'm not saying that what that person did at the church when they drank the Kool-Aid was legal, yeah. obviously, if you're murdering, murdering people. Yeah. yeah, what was it? What was it again? I think it's Jonestown. In Jonestown, yeah. yeah. But technically speaking, that's not a controlled substance. So you wouldn't even have to make an argument that that could be used as a sacrament. Am I wrong? <laughs> like, I mean, I, I, you're not wrong. And that's terrifying. <laughs> isn't that terrifying? <laughs> yeah. Isn't that a weird way of thinking of that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like also to flip it too on your point. I, I definitely, I mean, I'm all, I think safe supply. I definitely think you'd see a lot less people dying from drugs if people knew what they were getting. A lot of people don't realize a lot of people overdose because they don't realize what they're getting um, and is infiltrated with other things. And so that's a huge problem, but I don't think we should be surprised. I mean, we don't have a lot of education around alcohol and how harmful alcohol is. We like normalize alcoholism as part of our culture, um, which is someone I don't really drink. It's funny. I, I tweeted recently, I heard this phrase from someone at Dance Safe uh, Molecular agnosticism where like I really strive for that like I really want to just be and I I do think that we should decriminalize all drugs and like make it safer and I have my own biases because I'm human and I don't like alcohol only because it's like alcohol really hurts people it causes a lot of cancer and a lot of harm and alcoholism and we have a culture as a lawyer especially like in law school like let's go to happy hour let's and I'm like well what if I want to smoke a joint and like that would have a, I mean I do it anyways but that has like a certain um you know people are like oh you're going to do drugs. And it's like, as you are taking shots of a poison, like I couldn't smoke enough weed in the world to kill me. Like, and you could just drink like a few shots too many and that would be it. And it's like really sad. Um, but we also see it with food and with cleaning products and with everything, you know, like as we get more fillers, as we get more disconnected from our, uh, the, the products that we consume, we know less about what's in them. And I mean, I think on the cannabis side, I really want to see more transparency with what's in your weed and being able to see packaging and know that you're buying from someone local. You should be able to go to a farmer's market. You should be able to buy from people in your community that have grown their own cannabis. Like that is a way to really, like you do a normal farmer's market. Um, and so I think like just transparency and education are big across the board, whether we're talking about like food and makeup, or we're talking about cannabis or psychedelics, um, or heroin or meth. Like, why is it so, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't understand. It's like, if you really, and that's the biggest thing, the government and all their cases, they're like, we need to like the controlled substances act. We have an interest in protecting people from drugs and drugs are bad and drugs harm people. And so we're going to schedule them and we're going to make it illegal and we're going to criminalize people. And then you say, okay, you did that 40 years ago, 50 years ago has addiction decreased you know have people stopped dying like how can you be saying that there's a public health purpose that's furthered by this law that's criminalized people when we've only seen drug overdoses increase over time i mean it's really it's it's like actually it's so devastating um and i i mean that drives my work and i know a lot of other people in the space of like people shouldn't be dying unnecessarily i mean it's yeah. really what it is at this point yeah, I like that molecular agnost agnosticism. I, I can't I take gonna, credit for it. I just love it. She I said the I'm opposite gonna, was molecular chauvinism. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's awesome because that's exactly what I was about to try to make a point about is that I feel like too often um, we will um, try to 
we will try to make an argument for a substance and say, well, it's not as bad as heroin. It's not as bad as alcohol. And I, I really think that that's uh, uh, an argument that's not helping um, anybody, frankly, um, because at the end of the day, like there are medicinal uses for heroin. There are medicinal, one of that's really popular, a scapegoat right now is uh, fentanyl. I recently saw, I just had to for nostalgia purposes. I tuned in, Cat uh, Williams had a new comedy special and I used to watch him as a kid. So I, like I say, for nostalgia, I had to tune in. And one of his jokes, he's talking about the new drug, uh, these new drugs, and he's going on this rant and, you know, um, he, he's like talking about fentanyl and he said that he talked to some official and he's like, what do you got to do to die from fentanyl? And the person's response was, all you got to do is touch it, which is a major misconception that's being passed around right now. As far as I understand, you can't actually like just touch fentanyl and die. And again, there are medicinal uses for fentanyl. My mom just told me she took fentanyl recently because of a they had to like go in and do something to her heart. And I mean, you need fucking fentanyl for shit like that. You know what I mean? And uh, she was like, wow, that, that was something. And I mean, there's a purpose for it, you know? So. Yeah. I, I mean, just, I agree that there are like some like trying to not demonize any drugs. And I see it in the religion space too. We're like, well, we're an ayahuasca church. And because the government, one of the things they considered in some of this case law is like, well, is there a recreational market? Because the government's view, it's like, well, if we have a public health focus, we want to prevent diversion from this religious community to a recreational market, adult use market. And so since in these cases, they're like, well, there's, well, it's funny now because it's changed, but in 2005, there wasn't as much of a a commercial market for DMT. I would say now there's like a pretty significant uh, illicit market for DMT and ayahuasca ceremonies. Um, But that was one of the things the court looked at. And so Uh, That's why there are people in this world who are like, well, we're just going to carve out an ayahuasca church. And it's like, to me, ayahuasca is like, like psilocybin is way like when you talk about like toolkits, you know, like maybe I want my Advil and maybe I want my fentanyl and I don't need them on the same day. Maybe like, you know, like, and to me, like cannabis or psilocybin or um, MDMA, LSD there. I mean, I'm not here to, to put the drugs on a spectrum just to say that it seems kind of weird to me to say like, oh, ayahuasca is the one that we're going to make like, like more accessible. And then it becomes, well, ayahuasca is safer than LSD or ayahuasca. And I'm like, no, like that, you know, it shouldn't be like that. And I think when you start from understanding that the war on drugs is a war on people and a racist war and an immoral war, then the answer is not, oh, well, would it be safer if we didn't? No, we should just end that war and let people out of prison and rehabilitate that because that's really the core of this like spiritual problem of the war on drugs. Um, it's not like, oh, well, the government was like, hmm, is alcohol safer or less safe than psilocybin? Like, they never did that. Like, they literally didn't. Um, yeah, it's yeah. a nightmare. It's a nightmare. <laughs> it's crazy. And to, again, to uh, uh, give, I've been listening to a lot of Hamilton Morris recently, so I got to give credit where credit is due. Cool. Um, safety isn't the point, you know. Um, to us, I'd say, I'll speak for both of us, it doesn't matter whether or not something is safe. We should have the freedom to do dangerous things if we choose. I love riding motorcycles. Um, I plan to do it in Denver in a few weeks. It's going to be fun. Uh, my mom hates that I love riding motorcycles. Yeah. In America, we're allowed to shoot guns and purchase explosives to shoot those guns with. You can buy bleach, rat poison. You can go skydiving, bungee jumping. All of these things carry risks. 
but it's assumed that any adult that engages in these activities are aware of these risks. You know? And I mean, look, some people will say, what do you, what do you have to say to the people that have died on insert drug here? Well, people die from caffeine. Um, it's tragic that it happens and, uh, you know, but it, but it does happen. People, I just feel like people that advocate for the decriminalization, decriminalization of drugs. And like we say, certain drugs, it's that molecular chauvinism. They'll say it's impossible to die. There's no way. But if you set that as your standard, you're always going to fail because people will die or be inadvertently harmed and they'll die doing just about anything. People have died running, having sex, defecating Elvis Presley, uh, aspirin. There's nothing in this world that can't find its way into a human death, even cannabis. People will say you can't overdose on cannabis. And what they generally mean is a fatal overdose, which is unheard of. Uh, but if you look in the medical literature, there are a number of cannabis associated fatalities, which we could debate in endlessly, frankly, and some people try to. The point is, though, once a drug enters a large enough population, there's just like we said, there's going to be a number of sensitive individuals or maybe even ignorant individuals. And I don't say that to be chauvinistic. I mean, just say that we need to put more onus on education um, and they will die or be adversely affected. But that doesn't mean the drug's inherently dangerous. It just means that it's an unrealistic standard to set where that if anything bad happens to anyone, that we ha have to decide that the drug is dangerous and should be banned. Like you said, we've not done that with any of the other substances that we regularly interact with, which I'd say are prescription medications, cigarettes, and alcohol. We, lo we love those drugs. And caffeine. Yeah, and sugar. Uh, yeah, sugar. Hell yeah. Gosh. Try it. Try going without sugar. <laughs> <laughs> what I hear too, what you're saying and something that I've been thinking about and writing about. And I think it's like this like shift kind of, I think harm reduction as a movement is really incredible. The ideas of harm reduction, but what we actually want is like risk reduction. We actually want, you know, and part of risk reduction and like reducing the risk of harm is like giving people knowledge about the choices that they're making. Like when you want to yes. ride your motorcycle, like if it's raining, you can bring an umbrella. Like, I don't know. Or you can say, oh, it's going to be more slippery when it's wet and I'm going to reduce the risk that harm might occur. Um, but there's this like assumption of harm that like harm reduction kind of, kind of, you know, connotes, it's like, oh, well, there's going to be harm and we have to reduce it. And you think of like an overdose consumption, like, oh, you're about to, you know, overdose and die and we're going to save you. But like, what if we just like take 10 million steps backwards and we're like, okay, well, let's just create safe supply. Like that's really reducing the risk of harm. Um, so I, it's something that I, I, I want to be talking about in every regard, we should be talking about risk reduction. Hey, so, um, yeah, risk reduction. And I also think that another way of saying it is benefit maximization, you know, um, and I'm, I can't take credit for that either. Um, that, that one, I think I got from Dana Larson as well. Uh, really good with words that, that fella. Yeah. I can't um, take, I would say like the shift for me from harm to risk reduction. I got from, um, Jane, Natanya Ullman, uh, who's, who's in the a connector in the psychedelic world. And she really had made me think about that too. Um, and just like how language can shift the way that we think and, and the way that, I mean, I've explained it to people in academic settings, you know, 
like I said, you put a mask on. I think COVID has been a really big, well, if you want to put a mask on, but hopefully people understand that, you know, you can reduce your risk of doing whatever by making choices. And in the drug context, if you don't know what you're getting, like the fact that you can look at your soda and you know how much sugar you're getting, like that is risk reduction. Like you can decide, I don't want that much sugar. I, whatever. I mean, whether or not there's accurate labeling and everything, but like at least start from like attempting to create uh, transparency and information. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Man, we're stepping on controversial topics today. Abortion, masks, people are going to be outraged. No, I'm just joking. The mask thing is funny. I won't go too deep into it, but I have to just because it's like, I love the people that try to argue about like the percentage of efficacy. It's like, look, sneezing into your elbow may not be 100% effective, but it's better, better than just sneezing into the open air. How about that? Right? Like when you just boil it down to that, like we could argue about whether, you know, obviously it seems to have been proven that N95 is like the the creme de la creme as far as masks go. Like it's it's the one you want to wear. Um, but uh, I think that's always been funny when, when it shifts into a conversation of efficacy. It's like, oh, there's air plumes coming out of the mask. It's like, okay, dude, you got the point is you're not open air breathing. <laughs> that's we're just trying to bring the risk down a little bit. Yes, it's not perfect, you know. It's better than anyways, though. Um, we'll, we'll move on from that controversial topic. I mean, um, like I, I say religion and drugs. I'm like, I live in controversy, so you're good. Yeah. I just, uh, you know, I like this podcast to be a, a break from the madness for people. Yeah. So I, I always try to tread lightly on, on certain subjects, even if I am totally, you know, if I have a, do have a firm stance on it. So um, I loved this point that you made and i think it's going to it's going to we'll be able to make an easy segue to another brilliant point you've made in the past um you like how i'm just showcasing brilliant points you've made in the past no i mean to me so it's twitter is a great way to connect with lots of people and a great way to workshop ideas and um you know there might be people who in my position like oh don't tweet don't share your ideas but i think there's power in sharing them and i appreciate that you're appreciating them and I'm happy yeah. to talk more about them and have, and like Twitter is cool. It's an equalizer. Like if you're listening to this and you're like, I want to get in the conversation, like follow me, message me. Like I want to engage with people. I want to learn from people. So it's, you know, that's why I put the, put my thoughts out there. So I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you even know it's one of your most recent tweets. You said, I appreciate all the conversations I have on Twitter that help me think about how to make arguments and strengthen and evolve my ideas. That being said, I'm someone who is open-minded to changing my, I'm someone who is open to changing my mind, which means I might say things that contradict. Sorry, not sorry. I do that all the time too. <laughs> I, like in the past, I've talked about uh, the entourage effect, and I've and I've said that terpenes are definitely a part of that a part of that equation. Well, I've recently talked to a researcher, Sam, Doctor Sam Bannister, and now I mean he's done more research than me, and so I'm like, okay, I believe what you say. You know, what until did he I'm say? told. He he's studied it for about four four to five years, I think, and he has found no evidence of an entourage effect with regard to terpenes. Interesting. Um, he talks about like the mixture of different cannabinoids and phytocannabinoids. Yeah, yeah. Um, but simply put, because uh, we went back and forth on this a, f- a few times, and we've talked after the show. Um, it's not. This is something that actually was the most controversial thing about the conversation. It's not that the terpenes themselves don't have the effects that people claim that they do. And I know that I worded that it, that I claim, you know, but um, it's that they do not, they're not 
like prominent enough within cannabis. Like if you ever look at a lab test, I think what I was understanding him to say is that it's always just such a low percentage of a terpene that it wouldn't have a negligible, like it wouldn't have an impact. I would say it depends what cannabis you're studying. Cause like some of these, you can smell it. I mean, that's what you're smelling, you know, like, no, no, no. I I mean, I'm here to learn from the science you know, there's also, I'm here to learn from it. I think one thing that I've heard on the entourage effect is people I know who want to call it the ensemble effect because Mm -hmm. entourage feels like, Oh, we're in the club we're entourage, you know, like (laughs) a show (laughs) you picture like all these. um, And then the ensemble is more like all these beautiful things working together, which I think are the different cannabinoids and all the different. And I think it's more just like, Oh, you know, when I first got to New York for medical, they were like, Oh, we have isolated THC and isolated CBD. And I'm like, this has medical benefit, but I kind of feel like blah. It's like not, it doesn't have the same like, um, notes to it you know for the, the sure. symphony you know um but I'm, I'm actually i mean i'm super i i'm really interested in learning cannabis i'm actually doing this program called ganjier i don't know if you've heard of it yeah yeah i have heard of it. i'm doing that this summer so hopefully next time you know if we talk again soon i'll have a lot even more deeper knowledge of like terpene profiles i know they have like a whole um system for identifying cultivars and um but i also know a lot of the research it depends what products are being researched right like research mm-hmm. quality cannabis isn't known for being like the most uh well, well done. you just have yeah. to look you just have to look at the pictures of the weed from the uh from Mississippi and we can pull up a exactly, picture of that exactly. for the folks that uh um are watching the video version of the podcast. And I'll also take a moment to clarify that it was the satanic temple. They believe in empathy, reason, and advocacy. Um what a concept. Yeah, very, very interesting. And um I you know, I really so their description here, I'll just share it. They've publicly confronted hate groups, fought for the abolition of corporal punishment in schools. Um, they've applied for equal representation when religious installments are placed on public property, something I referenced earlier, provided mm-hmm. religious exemption and legal protection against laws that unscientifically restrict women's reproductive autonomy. Um exposed we should reach out to them and see if they're yeah. in drugs you know we should yeah no seriously I, it's I'm definitely out, a plan you know? do they need a lawyer let me know no, just kidding this is a, not not lawyer advertising just uh something definitely i plan but let me see here i i could probably find uh an image uh, weed grown at old miss i mean it's uh, like Oh, hold on. I know what picture I'm looking for. It literally looks like time, like spy, the spice time. The point is, um, it's not, it depends where that weed is researched, you know, cannabis is pulled from. So um, I just know it's like a person who's used medical cannabis daily for almost a decade that it makes a difference, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, when it comes down to it, I tend to agree. Like uh, I've smelled cannabis that has like I mean, hey, the terpenes are abundant enough to smell them, and that adds to the experience for sure. Um, I think his his point was uh, like in a controlled study. Somehow they they were unable to distinguish physiological effects, but there was a study that somebody sent to him again, a testament to what you just said about Twitter. um, That is a study on rats where they inject terpenes. And there was an effect now, but the thing is the concentrations at which they were dosed were just not again, equivalent to what you'd see in cannabis. So, so anyways, though, that's, that we'll have to, oh, it's interesting. Um, yeah. I want to connect them and I want to learn more. And, um, yeah, you know, I've heard there's terpenes and like all, I mean, 
alcohol has a lot of exactly like hops Definitely. And so like i mean i don't know anything about alcohol uh but, no, but there's terpenes in uh just about everything i mean uh, i believe myrcene can be found in black pepper hmm. limonene obviously and you know citrus lemons and other citrusy yeah. um so yeah yeah um so anyways the the topic i wanted to <laughs> segue to which like i said this is the one that i referenced earlier that i would like to get framed um what happened to advocating for decriminalization of cannabis since I'm reading a tweet that you wrote, what happened to advocating for decriminalization of cannabis instead of regulation slash taxation, looking at the statewide psychedelic proposals in Colorado. And there's a strong debate between decriminalization versus regulation that I think would be useful in cannabis, especially at the federal level. Um, The reason I thought that was an interesting conversation is because I I've been trying to make the argument recently that the cannabis movement has like lost its direction instead of it seems like legalization equals commercialization and what that means is we can sell as much as we want for uh in in the case of limited license state for whatever prices we want um but you can only purchase a limited amount you can only possess a limited amount and if you exceed that amount you will still go to jail. And my thing is, if you go back to those movements back in the days, I, I always say that with the flower childs and the hippies, they, I don't think if you would have asked them and they were on the side of the road smoking a doobie, they'd been like, <laughs> legalize it, man. And you're like, what does that mean? And they're like, well, what that means, man, is that we can buy dab pins from stores, but only in limited quantities. And uh, <laughs> that <laughs> we'd still get arrested if we, like they would not, they, what their definition of legalization was is that, you could possess, cultivate, use, use as much as you want, need, or please. And it seems like, and I think that's the point you were trying to make, we've yet to see that in any state. Mm. Um, we haven't seen like the actual criminal penalties removed from cannabis totally. It's only like you can have this small amount, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a big topic. Um, you know, I was, uh, that tweet was written while literally researching these Colorado decrim, uh, initiatives because I was writing a paper on uh, sort of how to balance religious freedom and the government's interest in public health and doing a comparison of some different models. And one of the Colorado decriminalization measures, um, does a really good job of decriminalizing a certain types. I mean, we could get into the, like, uh, psychedelic exceptionalism that is a part of it, but certain types of drugs, um, but allows it in both the religious, spiritual, or caregiving framework. Um, And so I thought that was very good from a religious perspective and from an access perspective. Um, And it it does seem like the psychedelic world is trying to say, like, let's learn from cannabis. We don't want to become like cannabis. Um, But I think that tweet also is like at the federal level, uh, there's this assumption that the federal government is going to regulate cannabis. And I don't know why we have that. Like, I don't know why the FDA needs to be in cannabis now or like the TTB. I mean, to an extent, maybe the same as alcohol, but I think when you ask those people that you're talking about, you know, what does legalization mean to you? I can go buy it at a store. I can make my own. I can smoke as much as I want. I think you're right. I can have as much as I want. 
Um, I mean, I think cannabis is a lot more useful in a lot of ways than alcohol and hemp also. I mean, I think the fact that people are not angry that they can't grow hemp. I mean, hemp is the most useful crop in the world. I feel like I could say that and mean it. I mean, as a food, as a gas, as a material, uh, hempcrete is going to be great. Hemp insulation is going to be great. But like, even though hemp is a more open market than cannabis, it still is limited. You still need a license to grow it. Um, there still are limits on how much you can grow. Uh, I mean, I, I know I've heard it is hard to grow, harder to grow hemp than, than maybe cannabis i don't know still um experimenting with my own ability because because if you it's our legal or stupid legal distinctions if you mess up all of a sudden you're not growing all of a sudden you're not growing hemp anymore you're growing cannabis that's the dumbest thing i've ever heard it's made up and it's dumb and it's all and like when i think about what the market you know i'm doing some writing i don't know if i said that on this this podcast interview yeah i'm writing a book and one of the essays is people's history of hemp and when i think about the future of that it's like when we like it should all just be the same hemp is cannabis is all of it and the question is okay is it something you're consuming because right now you're seeing these debates like well is it cbd from hemp is it cbd from marijuana like is it regulated is it and then like the hemp and the cannabis markets like we should all be working together like we're all going to benefit um from a world where if you want to go buy a consumable cannabis product it's regulated the same whether it comes from hemp or cannabis because it's a made-up legal distinction um so i agree with you on that front uh but i i think it might be too late at the state level to say let's decriminalize cannabis (laughs) i think the cat's out of the bag these states want their tax revenue and even though the illicit market is booming and it's you know beating the legal market in every state that has legalized so far uh they still want to try and get that revenue out as much as they can um so, I mean, the, I guess the, the tweet said it all is there, I, like at the federal level, I, I, there are bills that say like, oh, let's do social justice and, and invest in communities and have a federal tax. But I don't trust the government to actually do that. I don't trust them defining social equity. And I don't want the FDA um, having their hands in regulating cannabis more than they have to, because what happens if like, you know, Schumer's bill, which we'll see what the next version says, but the first version says primary jurisdiction to the FDA. That means the day that that gets signed, all of these state cannabis programs, medical programs are illegal. I mean, the FDA already says all cannabis and food is illegal. FDA is just like all bark, no bite, but you'll see, you've seen the news this past week, warning letters from the FDA and they scare businesses. And like, we don't need any of that. Like we need, I mean, I, Nothing has made me more of a libertarian-minded person than drug reform. I'm like, just get the government out of it. Just let people do what they want to do. Um, and like decriminalizing and creating access can do that. And I know there are bills that are going to pop up in other states, um, like Organs 110, that decriminalized all drugs. And I think that's really like to your point, even like a state like New York, like when you read that legislation, on one hand, it's like, yeah, like access. And on the other hand, it's like only if you can afford these licenses. And if you can't, when you read, there are still criminal penalties for selling in the illicit market. Like that you're still gonna be able to get in trouble and go to jail. So to me, that's not a progressive law. It's just like, I mean, it's just not. (laughs) Yeah, what we've said in the past, and it's not that we came up with this point, there was an attorney we spoke to, I can't remember remember their name right now, but um, if you're selling cannabis without a license, it should be a business offense, not a criminal offense. I mean- Or we just make it easy to get a license. Like Easier, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest, I was having this debate on Twitter today with someone where people are like, oh, like we don't have the infrastructure to do interstate commerce. And I'm like, haha, tell that to all the interstate commerce that's happening. Like it's literally happening. It's happening. In mass. Like if we just made it so that you could like actual amnesty, like actually like here, come and get, go pay your, get a driver's license for cannabis. 
And then there are going to be people who say to me, well, why should I have to get a license? Like, okay, your point's well taken, but it's that same point. Like the government's going to say they have a role to play. So figuring out what that role can be in a way that creates access, minimizes burden. Um, yeah. I like your stance on that. Like, I, you know, I would struggle with answering that question too. Why do I even need a license? It's like, okay, I get, I, <laughs> I like the tomato model too. I think that it should be uh, treated just like tomatoes. So you can buy it at a supermarket pretty easily. It's probably not that hard to sell tomatoes in a supermarket. It's not that hard to sell them at a farmer's market. It's not that hard to grow it yourself. You don't have a lot of worries when consuming tomatoes from wherever you get them. Um, and I think that the tomato model could easily be applied to cannabis. But I say easily, like you say, this is your this is where you said, okay, but when you step back, we're talking about the government here. <laughs> so I mean, so. I would say there's this one thing. And if I could like, like if, if you don't hear anything else I say, this is like something I'm like, I'm so there's this idea in the FDA, it's called food and drug law. Sorry, I should say the FDA is the Food and Drug Administration. You probably heard of them because the COVID vaccine, but they are Department of um, Health and Human Services. They regulate like food and drugs. Um within interstate commerce, but they also have impacts on state departments. There's this idea that has evolved within food and drug law, which is this concept of generally recognized as safe. It's called GRAS, G-R-A-S. You have a GRAS designation. Perfect. And grass once- Perfect. Oh, it actually is perfect when you say it like that, <laughs> when you say it like that. And the idea is once it's designated, generally recognized as safe, then you don't need FDA approval, which is very expensive and very costly to put it as like a food additive or a dietary supplement or to like sell it. Um, and like cannabis should be grass. Cannabis should not be an FDA and like naturally occurring cannabis that you grow. You should be able to basically do what you do with tomatoes with it. And although this sounds like a pipe dream, um, there's actually a piece of legislation that has been introduced in Congress that would legislatively just designate cannabis as grass and would take a huge, all the cannabis out there out of the FDA's jurisdiction, and it would be amazing. And I think we need to be pushing for that for so like psilocybin also. I mean, uh, but definitely cannabis should be grass. I mean, obviously, if there were widespread health, adverse health outcomes from widespread use of cannabis, we would know. I mean, like... So yeah, sorry, it's, it's okay. I felt like I was distracting you because I was laughing at you, but it's just funny to hear somebody say cannabis should be grass. I know, no, no, but this, like this that isn't a pipe dream. <laughs> cannabis should be grass. It's like how many you got to put that on a sign. Now that you've yeah. said that to me, I'm like, wow, that's great. Like, um, I mean, I could say the piece of legislation people will say, oh, it's like whatever, but the state's reform act and there's good and bad things in all these pieces of legislation. But the fact that a Republican introduced a piece of legislation that says cannabis is generally recognized as safe based on common experience. I mean, that's amazing. We should get that what, in every what bill. That? What are you referring to? I'm sorry. I think I know what you're referring to, but what it's are you? The States Reform Act. Okay. And that's the one from the... the Representative Nancy Mace. Right. Um, okay. Which I think it's the best bill out there. I'm willing to talk about other bills. More could be okay. I think safe is only helping big banks and not really helping anyone else. Um, yeah. You want to take that on? Cause that's a hot button topic right now. I know a lot of people are back and forth on that. I mean, to, to we just had Justin Libby on the show uh, from the university of Illinois. And he says that generally speaking, if you take cash out of businesses there, you're going to experience less robberies. Then on the other hand, people are saying that, when people are robbing these places, sometimes they don't even go for the cash. Um, where, where do you, what are you saying on that? And if you want to take on those two points. Um. 
I mean, I've heard of so many mixed things about the robbery front and like what's causing yeah. them and how widespread it is and other factors at play. You know, um, I think this idea that all cannabis is cash is kind of a misnomer because you can pay with debit card at many dispensaries, all these big multi-state operators, you know, people have come around that loophole where you have this like cashless ATM model where I pay with a debit card for my cannabis. Um, well, and frankly, let's make this clear. Some multi-state operators are working with banks. There are banks that are working. with. So I think that's the other thing too, like safe banking, People are like, well, we need to protect it, but it's like, it's just allowing the banks to feel more secure. I think the biggest issue actually bigger than is, is section 280 cap E. And some people think that, which is a tax code provision that says that these businesses can't deduct any expenses or excuse me, well, expenses, but it's like they can deduct cost of goods sold, um, but nothing else that a normal business can deduct and they can't take any credits. And that really, really sinks these businesses and safe banking. People have heard that before. Oh, safe banking will fix tax 280 E. It does not do that. Um, so, and then it, it doesn't force, like when people are like, oh, well, it'll help like minority owned businesses. Well, it doesn't force banks to not be racist. Um, <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, that's been an issue. That's a tale as old as time, getting capital for people that don't have access to capital. That's not like, sorry, I hit the dab pin. It's no, you're good, you're good. The dab pin's hitting me back. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, I would just say too, it's like the, the, I mean, and I love, I love cannabis. I want cannabis to be safer. I want there to be more access. Um, I say this and people on Twitter, it's funny. Like, I guess like maybe I've been in cannabis. Like I, when I was in college in 2015, 2014, I was a bud tender at a dispensary in LA. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm too late. Like I already missed the boat. Like cannabis is already basically legal. Like I missed the, you know, and then the more that I've been in this, the longer I've been in it. And the more I've seen, like, like I thought New York was going to pass in 2019. And that was like, the first time it was seriously even really talked about, like, and I got my hopes up and I watched all the, and like it, cannabis is not a priority for legislators, even if it should be, even if they can make money from it, even if it would help with public health, it's not a priority. And like, we're just getting good bills introduced at the federal level. Like realistically, they don't care about cannabis. Safe banking probably won't pass. Like, uh, none of these bills are going to pass this year, depending on the government change. Like I really have felt like a conservative estimate is like 2030. I mean, I hope it would be sooner, but I also think it's worth having these conversations about what the federal legislation should say and not just say we need to like pass something that sounds good without understanding the implications for federal regulation of cannabis. Um, and, and there are people that are saying that and all these arguments that I've dormant commerce class Twitter, which is a whole like like area which we could go down or not go down but arguments that are being made about interstate commerce and what that will look like and how we should you know uh reinforce these state silos um there's a lot more i could say but yeah that's definitely an active space and whether or not we should keep these uh states siloed off and um part of the argument has been and i don't i don't know Part of the argument has been that maybe that would allow some states to achieve social equity, which I think is a good segue to another thing you've talked about, which is, uh, quote, what about social equity programs, end quote, is starting to sound a lot like what about the children, a talking point used by some to invoke emotional power by people who couldn't care less about equity or children. I like what you had to say there. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, this gets me down the dormant commerce clause route, I guess, which is something that I wish I didn't have to, like, I really thought it was just like not going to be, uh, it's something that's been on my radar for a while. It's basically a constitutional provision um, that says that it promotes a national fair marketplace. Like you can't discriminate against out-of-staters is the short and long of it. Although I've written like 50 pages on it. So it's a lot longer than that. But um, so for example, there was a Supreme Court case recently that said, hey, uh, you can't have a residency requirement for an alcohol license. That's not fair. Well, yeah, and I don't mean to cut you off. Maybe you no, were please. going here, but Illinois just recently, I believe did away with their residency requirement if it wasn't based on that case, but another case in cannabis. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah. No, no, no. Go ahead. If you weren't done. Oh, no, no. I was because of what you were, what you were saying. I don't know exactly what it. Yeah, no, no, no. (laughs) Yeah. It's the dormant commerce clause. So the commerce clause says Congress can regulate commerce between the states. The dormant commerce clause courts have implied says states can't pass laws like residency requirements or in the tax area. Like states do this forever because legislators are like, Hey, if I tax people out of state more, then I can raise money to fund things that my constituents want. And those people can't vote for me. And our constitution has has been interpreted says you can't do that. Like that's not fair to those out-of-staters. We want just like there's the full faith and credit clause is another example. Like you can get a marriage license or a driver's license in one state and you can go to another state and it's valid. And all of these are protections that promote this fair national marketplace. Um, And so some scholars in the space and some advocates, both on, you know, more progressive and more right advocates have said, we need to take this language from insurance, pause the dormant commerce clause so that it does not apply, so that residency requirements and other burdensome discriminatory requirements could remain because states have built up these programs and many of them violate the constitution and we should let them continue to do which I think is crazy. (laughs) And one of the arguments is like, well, what about social equity? But then when you see some of these cases, like one of them was, sometimes the social equity does win. The point is the courts do a balancing test and they say, well, what is the purpose of this? And like wanting to end the war on drugs could be a legitimate purpose and trying to repair the harms. But there was a case, I think it was a Michigan case where the court said, even the, the, the people bringing the case said, you know, this doesn't actually like, providing a residency requirement for wealthy people that can afford housing long-term in the city does not align with the goal of trying to give access to licenses to people that are harmed by the war on drugs, that there actually is a disconnect, that these what are called protectionist measures like residency requirements or not allowing people to export products or whatever, um, that these are um, like necessary. I don't know. I don't under, yeah. And so then the, then the, the follow-up from that, which has sparked a whole conversation, like as a constitutional law person who loves constitutional law, has studied it, um, has been like a teacher in it. It's like, you can, like the idea that Congress could legalize cannabis under its commerce clause power and then ban interstate commerce, like makes no sense to me. And then the idea, so, so some of these arguments that people are making about the dormant commerce clause say, oh, well, states should be able to, because we have given states the power to discriminate, we should allow the states to continue to discriminate. <laughs> and we should give them the power to ban interstate commerce. We should let, and I'm like, well, why does a state want to ban interstate commerce when they can make more money from it? And as we talked about a few minutes ago, like there's a large amount of interstate commerce that, that's not getting taxed. So pretending like it's not happening and just being like, we're going to allow states to ban it and keep pretending like it's not happening and crack down on people that are doing it and criminalize people that are doing it. Like that just seems like delaying. And, and they're like, oh, well, we'll do it temporarily. And then eventually we'll transition into interstate commerce. And I'm like, this is not going to work. And 
there's like the fundamental right to travel. There, there are other constitutional protections that I feel like would make this idea that states could ban interstate commerce. I mean, there's, there, I mean, there's also a whole other question on like, well, can states force like people are, the people that are arguing this are like, well, can the federal government force the states to allow interstate commerce? And it's like, what depends what you mean by interstate commerce? Like the, there's case law that says states can't just be like, oh, you're not allowed to transport your cannabis through my state. You can't do that. Like, that's not how our country works. They could say, we don't want to allow sales in our state, but they really can't just be like, we're going to close our borders. <laughs> like, it's like not, it's like once there's a shift in the federal law, like, I don't know, I could go down this more, but it feels like there's a lot. Of, and then, and then I see people that are making these arguments and they're academic scholars. And I swear to God, one of the arguments for why we should allow, well, why we should encourage Congress to suspend the constitution, to allow states to discriminate is because people have put a lot of money and invested in these state-based markets and they need to get the return on their investment. And if we, you know, allow interstate commerce and it's cheaper to grow all the cannabis in California than the people right now who are investing millions and millions and millions of dollars to develop, you know, in Missouri or New Jersey or whatever, that they're going to lose out on their money. And you know what I say that it's a risky investment and people are still getting put in prison for doing the exact same activity, the exact same activities. And we shouldn't be protecting investors over people. And like you said the quiet part out loud, like you're supposed to be like, oh, social equity is more important than the investors. And like these academic works are not even so, but they do say, what about social equity? Advocates for social equity to say, oh yeah, we need to suspend the dormant commerce clause. And I'm like, no, let's talk about real social equity. Like, let's talk about making it easier for people to get licensing. Let's talk about licensing the legacy market. Let's talk about, you know, like tax subsidies. Let's talk about like real ways to create social equity, not just like making the like the barrier to entry so high and then requiring that social equity like jump over it. Like let's lower the barrier to entry. Now you got me out. This is stuff that I really have been thinking about. No, I love it. So I'm on my my uh, what's it called? My uh, soapbox. Soapbox. Yeah. Don't step off it. Stay on it. I like where I like what you were saying. Seriously. No, I appreciate it. It's just and it's like. it's hard to trust some of the academic work out there. I'm like, who's paying you to say that they should protect their investments? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the, the most power, one of the most, sorry, one of the very powerful things that you brought up was the idea that there are so many barriers to entry. And if you would think that if you're trying to do social equity, I'm trying to think, trying to use the right words, that you would not have barriers to entry because folks that are usually systemically like cut out of the equation, you would think that you wouldn't want the system to be cutting people out of the equation because <laughs> that's what limits and, and these uh, restrictions inherently do. They inherently cut people out of the equation. I mean, uh, in Illinois, we've got a very limited licensed market, and uh, the cannabis czar, Toy Hutchinson, um, w one of the quotes that she said that I think was super powerful, uh, she was just explaining the, the law as it was passed. And she said, look, 4,000 people applied for 185 licenses. It, there's only 185 licenses for four, for almost 5,000 people. And Again, if the goal is to achieve social equity, how would you do that? If you're basically creating a master class, primary, like exclusive rights over a, um, a, a market. And what people have tried to argue in the past is that, well, 
limiting licenses, they don't say this, this is what I say, it artificially inflates the value of the license. I think they say it inherently inflates the value of the license. I say artificially because it is truly artificial. We are building these controls in, and if it were a truly free market, and I'm not talking, I'm not, I want to be clear, I always try to be clear for listeners, I'm not talking of free market as in we don't have like testing standards or consumer safety standards. I'm talking about free as in there's not a limitation on the number of licenses that can be issued. Oklahoma style. Oklahoma style. Hell yeah, baby. It's just like rock and roll. (laughs) So any other thoughts on that topic? I know this this is is the topic right now. I I mean, I mean, I agree um, with you on like, I think I've said in my writing, like, we need to let people succeed and fail on their own merits, but not because they can't afford or access the market. Um, and even in New York where, and I, I, I hate to be the one who's like, it's not good enough. And like, I'm like, yeah, okay. Like if the fact that, I mean, we shouldn't take for granted that it is good that any kind of government entity entity is acknowledging that there was a harm, racialized harm done by the war on drugs. That is at least saying that they want to do something to help it. But when you look at like social equity licensing, like this cracked me up, this like conditional, I mean, cracked me up because I'm like, this is so absurd. Like if you've been to New York City, I lived in New York City for five years. There is a booming illicit market. There's dispensaries and speakeasies and delivery systems. I mean, there's people used to say more cannabis consumed in New York City than any other city in the country. And I think it's arguable. I mean, there's a lot of cannabis consumed. I mean, there's a lot of people doing all kinds of drugs and you need cannabis on either end to help you out. No, I don't know. But people do a lot of cannabis in, in New York City. And so this idea, I mean, even now you can watch, I mean, and they introduced a bill to recriminalize all this illicit activity, now illicit activity under the new cannabis law. Um, But they released this conditional adult use social equity licensing and the governor got to say, we're doing social equity. And everyone says New York is setting an example for the rest of the country. And in order to like apply for one of these licenses, you need to have been harmed by the war on drugs or someone in your family, but you also need to show an above ground, like tax return ownership interest in a successful business for multiple years, which means if you're a legacy operator, you're probably not going to qualify. If you're currently operating an, a, like a dispensary, a delivery service, you have zero incentive to like try, like you, you're not going to be able to, you're probably, I mean, it depends how you're doing your business. And some of these people I know that were a great market cannabis, they started a consulting company or a, like there are ways to, to navigate that, but uh, it's really just cutting out the existing market, which is not going to go anywhere. I mean, I, I read a number recently, 70 to 80% of California is still illicit. Um, or I don't even like that word. Illicit's weird to me. Unlicensed, untaxed, um, existing, legacy, good. I don't know. Like, um, I mean, like, so this idea of like, oh, well, if we need to legalize and we need to tax and every, all of that just assumes that the legal market is successful. And just because these states are getting tax revenue from you know, newer consumers who are willing to pay more for lower quality product, they're not capturing the whole market. Um, And I guess the only other thing I would say too, is when people make debates about interstate commerce or about the dormant commerce clause or about like, it's not some like thing that you just like suspend. It's like, what is Congress going to say about cannabis? And that should be the conversation. We can't just say, oh, well, like literally some of these arguments are like, well, we need to give the federal government time to figure out how they're going to regulate cannabis. Why do we need to do that? Congress has not wanted to regulate cannabis for 30 years. I mean, there's been medical my whole life and Congress has not decided that it's time to step in and regulate cannabis. So I don't understand, like it's made me more of a state's rights person, but it's like the states are already doing them. Let's let them do it. Let's decriminalize at the federal level. Let's, you know, like create 
pathways through the FDA, through generally recognized as safe, through other options. Another thing that bill that I like, which I'm open to it being a different bill, does is it creates what's called, I think it's called the Medical Product Safety Act or something. Essentially, it creates a pathway for state-based medical cannabis that wants to be sold in interstate commerce to get what's called in that legislation an FDA non-drug designation. So it's not a drug, which is important because that means that it doesn't have to go through pre-market approval. It doesn't have to go through the FDA requirements. So it, it won't, it like what that, I mean, it matters what that looks like. It matters how rigorous it is. But the way that I read that legislation is that's only if medical products want to be sold in interstate commerce. And those medical products would be exempt from the federal tax, which is important because the biggest thing as a medical patient, as someone who actually, it's funny, the what about the children thing, you know, like kids need medical cannabis and need protections. Like when we have states that legalize adult use, medical suffers. And so we need a piece of federal legislation that in contemplates existing medical markets that figures out how to protect them, that encourages through, I mean, if, if you're a medical patient and you can get tax exempt cannabis, you're gonna stay a medical patient. Like you're gonna, like that, that's gonna keep the medical model um, thriving. So this is my soapbox, but you'll keep, I mean, I'm going to be putting out a lot of this writing on this stuff for people to read, um, in the coming months and like happy to talk more about it. And I think, like I said, I think we have a lot of time and we can't just say, Oh, Congress should pass whatever they can pass. It should be really, we should think about what is going to allow us to create access, minimize burden, incentivize people to come into the legal market. Um, that like, it's not just like, Oh, you're going to legalize and create this market. The market exists. Uh, let's just make it safer and better for people and home grow. Oh my God. I can't believe some of these States that don't even have home grow. It's like Illinois is technically one of them. We don't allow all adults to home grow. You have to get a medical card to home grow, which is just, it's funny. Um, it's just funny because there was actually a, a recent issue with the Illinois department of health's website that allows you to get certified for the medical cannabis card. So I was like thinking like, so you're telling me, that if my card lapsed right now and I couldn't recertify and cops came by and my card was expired, that I could get in legal trouble because the Department of Health didn't say I could. It's just if when you think about it down to that level, that shows like how asinine it is. I was told, though, just to be clear for our audience, if you're worried about that situation, first of all, no current issues that I know of with the portal. But second of all, I have been told by the state I, I like kind of presented that scenario and they said that there are protections i should ask for specific protections that they can point to if if you folks are curious um, but there are protections for that scenario apparently uh, but still i wanted to boil it down to just how asinine it is like it should just really be, you shouldn't need to pay for a card from the state that says i've had a conversation with my doctor which means that i can cultivate cannabis like it's like what other circumstance is that even a thing like i spoke to my doctor now i'm allowed to grow tomatoes like <laughs> like well and i think it's important to say too which is big in the drug law space that it's really about like uh, what's enforcement look like and the chances of someone coming to enforce against people that look like you and I are like, I don't claim to know your, your background, but you're white presenting to me, at least on the screen. And like, I'm, I'm white. And uh, so the chances of enforcement against me are very low. And so like, when you have this kind of like, well, you have to fight to get protection, but like, who's that going to impact people that live in, you know, I mean, well, don't even the, the inability to consume or have, or 
grow in, you know, federally subsidized housing is a huge issue um, and other types of housing. So it's like, yeah, it's not that just that it's like ridiculous that you should have to do this. It's like by requiring like, okay, it's pretty easy for me as like a white woman of some privilege to be able to get my medical card and to feel protected. But like there have been barriers every single state that I've had to do it that like if I wasn't of means um, or if I was afraid, if I was not documented, I mean, I mean, there's just so it's like, it's like, it's not just that it's so ridiculous. It's just like, it's even more, it's like, even it's like, I, I've said what I said. It's, it's, it's racism. I mean, yeah, it's just a mechanism well, for enforcing racism. I think in the past, uh, to get your medical card in Illinois, you had to get a criminal background check. You had to get fingerprinted. You had to pay for your own fingerprints. Um, you had to pay for your own background check. And, uh, that was just to get certified for the medical cannabis program. Um, which is just like you say, crazy. This, and then and, probably and it costs racist. a ton. It probably costs a ton once you're in the medical. Like that's the thing. Like I'm gonna get, I'm oh, gonna yeah. get my medical card in New York to access. I mean, for most of my time there, I couldn't get flour. You still can't get whole flour. I mean, maybe now, maybe, but I think technically still medical in New York is is th- um, is is ground flour for vaping purposes. Like yeah, I heard that they are starting to sell whole flour whole flour but i've not seen i've not been there and also new york is like columbia care cure leaf it's not i wouldn't go absolutely. there absolutely i wouldn't go yeah, there no. for the flour you know my like you could just go to a bodega i mean i get friends pictures from my friends all the time uh in new york like hey there's a, a machine in my bodega where i can get cannabis like why am i gonna pay crazy taxes and uh yeah yeah new york is one of the states you bring up columbia care and other companies they I always like to bring this up and that people probably get tired of me bringing it up, but it's important. They wrote a letter to representatives and one of the chapters was called the fallacy of home grow. And in it, they basically just said that, you know, people are too stupid to grow themselves. So we recommend that, you know, you make that illegal, keep that illegal, please. Cause like we, the, there's an importance of having a safe regulated uh, market, they say, and, you know, Again, I think the tomato model is what we can look to. Sure, you know, we can have tomatoes sold at stores across the nation and small stores and farmers markets. And people, but people get sick from bad tomatoes sometimes, you yeah, know, and there are recalls happens. and it happens. And like, that's normal. No, I mean, yeah. I've been seeing this on the religious side. It made me really piss me off. And I tweeted about it today too. On the, well, like this idea and it's it happens i guess when you're trying to when you're so busy like justifying we're talking about this earlier like oh well this is safer than that or this like i can prove that this isn't going to hurt anyone and it's like it's really about freedom it's really about but also even if we are like someone i read an interview with uh, someone in the psychedelic religion world who was like well we, we need to do more research on if it's safe to do religious use of psychedelics in community settings like we don't have research on it i'm like well first of all we have all of history where people have been doing it so just because there's not like fda sanctioned research that's like comes from like the same like you know white western view that's okay but also even like we have the the udv church the santo daime church uh the native american peyote church like all of these are protected legally the government has actually said that these are safe that these are beneficial but you people get stuck in this like oh well we need proof it's like that it's like the homegrown thing well like where's the proof that homegrown harms anyone and i get it like people are afraid of homegrown i've heard i mean i i'm a medical patient in rhode island and now i can i own a home now so i'm gonna try my first shot at growing uh in the coming weeks and but i've heard it's hard <laughs> like it's not like it's like an easy thing to do necessarily and not everyone is gonna want to do it but it's your right to be able to try and it's a it's an equity 
access. I mean, like if you're using cannabis as medicine and you can grow, I mean, for me too, I mean, I came of age in cannabis as a medicine for myself in California where I could access any cultivar that I wanted. And there are certain cultivars that work better for me and I can't always reliably get them at dispensaries. And if I can grow my own, then that is like freedom over my medicine and like my health healing journey. And um, I think like, we don't talk about that enough either. It's not, and it's like, I can create whatever way I want to consume them. I mean, I'm not necessarily yet ready post ganjie I'll be ready to dig more into the weeds of um, processing techniques and, and how we can, but that's a whole other debate too around home grow. Well, people are going to make their own concentrates and we're going to make it illegal or I don't know. I mean, I, like, and in New York city, it's all right. I mean, that's the other thing funny. Everyone's like, New York is the, I'm like the landlord lobby in New York is strong. If you think that people are going to be able to do whatever they want, like in a legal market as compared to the illegal market, I mean, New York is going to be very, very, and like the idea of some of these setback rules, oh, you need to have this, this far from a school and this, I mean, everything in New York is on top of each other. Um, I mean, I think it has potential. I, I, I thought the, the gray market scene in New York was fun. The cannabis speakeasy was fun. I don't anticipate the legal market to be uh, as fun, but I, I want there to be social clubs. I want there to be community spaces. I want there to be community gardens. Um, I don't believe that legislators who are saying that really want those things. I think they're trying to say it to appease uh, social justice advocates, but we should keep saying it. I mean, I don't trust them. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't either. Yeah. Cause we've seen it time and time again, where it doesn't go that way. That's, that's where it comes from. I mean, Illinois was pitched as the most, you know, equitable. I remember law. that. And they said at that, they said at the time that it would be used as a model for other States. Well, now they're saying New York is that state. So, you know, we've been through this before and look, I hope for the best. I don't want to, I don't want, you know, I want the best. I hope for the best. So, um, Hey, I just wanted to say congratulations. You're done with the, are you done with school now? Like, yeah, I am done, 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 done. Like hundred percent. the bar, you're done yeah, with school. I, yeah. I passed uh, the New York bar last year and I waved into Rhode Island and we'll be waving into Massachusetts. Um, and I found out a few weeks ago now I passed the California bar, which like is thrilling, super hard test to pass. Um, and I, I, and this is another thing that I guess I could note on that came up earlier too. Like, I really, I, I also wish for the best. I also don't want people, but part of it is like, when you think about cannabis in 10 years from now, I don't think I want to be buying cannabis. Like I want to buy the, we want people to smell good quality stuff and it's going to come from California. <laughs> it just is. And it's going to come from Oregon and it's going to come from Colombia, and it's going to come from Mexico and it's going to come from places with good growing seasons and history. And maybe the Middle East, I mean, some of these indica, the hash, like there's, there's good cannabis all over the world. I don't think Virginia or Missouri, I don't know, like indoor grows and in, we could grow good cannabis lots of places, but I don't necessarily think we should be investing in growing it anywhere um, and everywhere. I mean, and we should like think about creating ways for people that already can and are growing good cannabis in California to export their cannabis, um, to get paid its value. I mean, it's good quality, humble, you know, Emerald Triangle or any all over California. Um, and so that's why I took the California bar. I'm not planning on moving there quite yet, but really excited about opportunities to get involved there. Um, so yeah, I'm done, done with school doing this Gangier stuff. 
finishing my book. I'm going to transition in the next few months into a lawyer role. I think I found the right firm that will really give me the freedom uh, to work on cannabis and tax and nonprofits. Um, I can't announce it quite yet because it's not, you know, you got to wait till stuff's real, but uh, well, people hopefully can follow me on social media and engage with me, LinkedIn or um, Twitter, Instagram, Victoria Littman on, on everything. Um, so I think it's going to be a really exciting time. And I, I hope to also get involved in some of the, the policy conversations that are happening, um, because I think that there aren't enough people that are advocating for patients. Uh, and that's I come by really personally uh, as a patient. I don't know if you had a follow-up question. I just used that as a chance to talk about what I'm up to. <laughs> no, no, that's perfect. That's kind of what I yeah I wanted to to talk about. Yeah, what what you'd be up to now that you are done and stuff. So that's 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 cool as hell. That's awesome, and we'll have to keep in touch because I I just am so confident that that yeah you've got a you're gonna have like I I. I like where you stand and I think you've got a bright future, I guess is what I'm saying. So I'm looking forward to seeing what you do in the space. You know, um, your, your approach is so unique. Like I say, uh, like while we might have both known about these topics and had similar conclusions to them, it's, it's your approach through religious freedoms that I've again found very interesting. Cause I really do believe that, I don't mean to just like be an advocate for the satanic temple. I think that all churches are as that's the point though, of the satanic temple. I believe again, that it's an equalizer, you know, it's um, you know, cause people have the right to believe what they want to believe. And if you don't, I feel like the satanic temple is, is the place for you. Cause it's like, we, we believe we ascribe to all these values. We like the sense of community and everything else, but we just don't necessarily have a deity or a book or whatever it whatever it might be. You know what I mean? So, but again, sorry, I got off on a. No, you're good. No, I appreciate Um, it. I think it's like people have been really harmed by religion and I get that. And then at the same time, like as someone who studied religion, um, because there are really harmful things done in the name of religion, religion is powerful. It it shapes how you see the world. It shapes how you connect and relate to other people. It shapes the structure of your life, your weeks, your, and like the thing is in our American context, I think people are like, Oh, I'm not religious, but oh yes, Sunday is God is football day, you know, like the NFL or soul cycle, or, um, I mean, cannabis community spaces. Like there are so many ways that people actually do find that belonging and connection and community. Um, and I like appreciate your, your enthusiasm for the, uh, satanic temp- temple. It comes up like in a religion class, but it's like, people like make fun of like, oh, these religions that are so far out. And then it's like, well, all of our religions are kind of far out and they're all like, you know, and I mean, like I said before, if the if the if people want to use religion to try and create access to things, but they're forming communities, talking about their values, making meaning out of their life, like that would be that would be good for me. I mean, that would be good for society. So I think like whether or not you're like, oh, this is religion, or it's like, oh, this is like a way to feel connected. Um, I, I mean, I hope that I, I think that people will be drawn more to community spaces in this post-pandemic era. And um, from the perspective of religion, too, it's actually really interesting. There's a phenomenon in religious studies called the rise of the nuns. And it's like the N-O-N-E-S, like religious nuns. So there's more and more people that are like, oh, I don't identify as any religion. I'm nothing. I'm. But the thing is, we all have these like cosmologies. We all have these worldviews that are the result of our upbringing. And, and even like I think being an atheist is a very strong religious belief. Like that is like to me, like, wow, you are sure that there is nothing. Like I'm like a... 
I, I think as I've gotten older, I actually believe more in that there's something bigger that connects all of us. I think I used to be more of like an optimistic agnostic. And now I'm like, no, I really think that. And, but like, I could tell you my view of God and I'm going to write about it. My book is partially theology because I went to divinity school and like how we think about how we think about things, which um, is really fun. And I, I hope that I can help you know, give people the tools that I got in divinity school for how to think about religion and kind of put that out there into the world. So people can start, you know, interrogating their own ideas about religion and God and meaning making, because like I said, everyone has them and they're dictating the things that you're, the choices that you're making. Um, and it's interesting too, like on the addiction side of things, like connection with the spiritual power, like is one of the things that people talk about when you're combating addiction, but also the community space of groups like AA. So I think that there's a lot of parallels, um, just like that addiction is like this disconnection from our environment, from our community, from ourselves, and that spirituality or this practice of meaning making can be a method for you know, feeling that connection and psychedelics can be a tool and meditation can be a tool. And there are a lot of tools that we have at our disposal to help us feel more connected. Um, and I mean, just this that stuff that we're talking about, I think a key thing that I hope to do in the next year, and I'll be excited to keep our relationship going and keep talking and as, as many people as I can, it's just education. Um, and I've been like so lucky to have privilege and also intellectual ability and desire and to come of age when I had medical marijuana. Like there are so many things that contributed to me being able to go on this academic journey that I've been on. Um, and I've learned a lot of stuff and I'm like, I want other people to be able to have, you know, the sources that I got, like you shouldn't have to pay for the education that I had to have these tools. Um, so that's like the, the biggest thing driving, you know, me wanting to come speak to you and me on Twitter and me writing and hopefully me as a lawyer is education and access. Well, it's truly been uh, a privilege to speak to you today. Um, and, you know, um, I really appreciate your time and uh, I appreciate, you know, uh, if I could give a final thought, um, <laughs> something that I really appreciate about you is your open-mindedness. I, I, I try to approach things open, like with an open mind. And I always really appreciate it when other people do too, you know, that, you know, just trying to keep it open. Maybe, you know, maybe that could be the case or whatever, you know, yeah. it seems like on a lot of these different topics, we, you take that stance. And I just wanted to, to say that I appreciate that. You don't see that enough in people these days. I appreciate that. I think, uh, you can blame the weed. <laughs> <laughs> seriously no, though no. I, mean, I, I do i, I yeah. attribute it to that i mean for sure because it's allowed me to look at things from a different perspective and i would say it's weird and it sounds so hippy dippy i like i almost hate saying it it sounds like cringy for i don't know why either you know no, it should be yeah. like i should embrace it but um just for certain people like i, I feel like if i would say this in front of my mom or dad they'd be like Anyways, let me say it. So it's like, I do feel like, yeah, cannabis has changed my perspective on, on things like it can single, it can, I point to it. Like I remember certain moments in my life or even, you know, you've had those moments where you have like an interaction where it's like, maybe you're being gruff or whatever. And you, with somebody, your significant other, and then you walk away and you, you hit the dab pin or whatever. And you're like five minutes later, you're like, why am I such an asshole? You know, you know what I mean? little things like that are important in my opinion. Like I, there's so many times you talk to my partner, Justine, where I've like, uh, 
I've, I've grounded myself. You know, I talk about being open-minded. I'll ground myself in on something and I'll be debating her on something. Maybe that we, the ritual of cleaning the kitchen, what you need to do first. <laughs> I, I insist that you start with wiping down everything and then you sweep, but you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. Um, five, I hit the dad pin five minutes later. I'm like, you know what? I see where you're coming from with saying that you got to do this first, <laughs> that type of thing. I mean, I am with you. Cannabis has completely changed my life. Uh, I think, uh, one of the things for me that I always think is funny is people are like, cannabis makes you stupid. It makes you forget stuff. I mean, I passed how many bar tests, bar exams, like I've done how many years of school, like it does not affect my memory, but the freedom to forget like anxieties and the, you know, when you like leave an interaction and you're like, Oh man, did I say something stupid? And then just be like, you know what? I'm just going to smoke this long. And then you're like, Oh, what was I even like upset about? Like it literally doesn't even, and that is like healing. Like that is cannabis as an anti-anxiety medicine. Um, that I think is like really incredible. Um, but I just want to thank you too. Like, I really appreciate, you know, I'm, I am younger. I, I feel like age is such a thing that matters to some people. It doesn't matter to other people, but I'm coming out of school. I'm a new lawyer. Um, and there have been, you know, a variety of approaches to how people handle me. And I mean that in a nice way. I mean, like some people are like, oh, we're so excited that you're going to study tax and you're studying religion and you are passionate and you love these plants and we want your help. And there are other people that are like, you're young and you think you know things and you're a competition to us and we want to push you down or, you know, we want to tell you that, you know, someone's like, oh, you have a bad reputation online. I'm like, okay, tell that to the people on Twitter that I enjoy talking to. Like, I don't, you know, like, so I really appreciate that you were willing to um, you know, be responsive to what I was putting out there and, and bring me onto your show. And I'm so excited, hopefully to connect with people that listen to your show. And, um, yeah, I am, this conversation was really fun. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And, uh, I gotta say, as we leave that I identify with that as well, people, ageism is like the last thing that's okay. You know, like it's like totally okay. Like, and especially with this stuff where like there are people that are coming into cannabis and psychedelics who are like oh yeah this is my fourth career and I thought that like looked cool so I, when I'm like dude I it's not that I wouldn't choose this career this career chose me like this medicine cho- like has changed my life and like that's a different like I don't come to this like I know about cannabis because I use cannabis and like that, that is just power. I think it's like a young person's space. And in tax, it's fun too, because tax laws change all the time. So they always say like your young tax lawyer right out of school is like in the best position to help you. Like that's why older tax lawyers like love young tax lawyers because they're like, Hey, tell me what you studied in school. Like I want to know the cutting edge stuff. Um, and I feel like cannabis is the same. Like we're, you know, we're all coming in at the same place. If anything, you know, people that are of the culture, we're of the culture uh, and, and we get to shape it. So yeah. I love to support you too. I mean, I, you know, it's amazing. Well said. Well, um, before we go, any last thoughts, anything else that you want to get out there? I mean, I saw that you shared your paper that you wrote. I didn't know if you had anything like that you wanted to share anything. You wanted oh. to I know that you, you mentioned you're going to have a, some, some different writings and stuff people can look forward to again, folks show notes. We'll try to put Victoria's information in there so you can connect with them online. Uh, but anything else, like I said, just final words. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you, I, I've done a lot of writing on drugs and psychedelics and tax law and constitutional law. Um, I'm writing a book. I, so like, I, I'm excited to put stuff out into the world over the next year. I mean, the stuff's moves so slow. My brain's like, let's go, let's go. But, um, but yeah, follow me on Twitter, like shoot me a message. Like if you, I'm, 
I'm still at a point where I'm like, I'm happy to connect with people. You know, I, I'm like, I, I, I welcome emails. Like I can, my, you know, like my, we can put my email in the show notes or you can connect with me, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. Um, like I want to learn from people. And I, I feel like if, if what we're saying resonates with you, if you also feel like patients are a priority, if you want to think about nonprofits or community-based organizations, like I want to be helpful and I want to help spread the knowledge that I have to help support um, you know, a really accessible and safe and not like we need to not know home grow safe, actually safe uh, cannabis market. So thank you so much again, uh, Cole, really. Yeah. Yeah. And frankly, folks, uh, fi- so final thought as we close this show on the other side of that token, you can always go to chillinoynet slash contact if anything. So first of all, before I talk about the other side of the token, if anything resonated with you, definitely reach out to Victoria or uh, us. Uh, once again, chillinoynet slash contact is an easy way to reach out to us. If anything resonated with you, feel free to share it. If you, if you disagreed with anything, I'd love to hear it. Um, that seriously. too, that too. No, no, no. I mean yeah. that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I knew you meant that too. That's because you referenced that in your tweet earlier. So I just wanted to uh, say that as we part. So folks, I hope you found value in this episode of the Chillinois podcast. And uh, we'll probably sit down with Victoria uh, sometime again in the future. So take care and we'll see you on the next episode.